Well, good evening to you. Uh, this, Eleanor and I love coming to this church. I've told you that before, but it's as true now as it was then, and it's wonderful. And of course, John and Debbie, we love dearly. Um, it is perfectly true. In September last year, we uh, ceased to be the leaders of the vineyard, and they took over. What actually, what they won't have told you, of course, is the way it happened. There was a coup d'état, <laughs> and they rolled their tanks onto our back lawn. And they surrounded the barracks, and they took over the, the radio station, the television station. And courtesy of the CIA, we were flown off to some special rendition site, a deserted airfield in Bulgaria, and uh, never to be seen again. So by the way, if any of you have had a sense of humor failure, I was actually joking. <laughs> But I'm not joking when I say we're thrilled to be here and uh, thrilled with the, all they're doing in leading the church here and leading the vineyard rabble in the nation. Uh, if you have a Bible within reach, would you like to turn to the New Testament bit to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12? Or you may have it on some digital device which you may refer to on condition that you don't do your emails. They can wait till tomorrow morning. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? I don't mean one induced by pharmacology of some sort or other. I don't mean that. <laughs> I mean when you've maybe come here on a Sunday evening and you've been inspired by the worship, and your hands are up. It was a beautiful worship we had this evening, and indeed this morning. You know, it may even be that you have one experience, and then somebody suggests you come forward, and you get prayed for, and that's a marvelous experience. <laughs> and then you walk, walk out into the car park to go home, and within, let's say, three minutes, you're embroiled in an argument. from the mountaintop, from the, the, from the very peak, down into the pit in three minutes flat. You're really enjoying the presence of God, and you've had a marvelous time, and <laughs> you get in the car, and the kids in the back are screaming and fighting and biting each other, you know, normal family outing. And you, again, you go from the peak to the pit in milliseconds. A bit like, I suppose, a, a game of snakes and ladders where you <laughs> keep landing on the square where there's a snake and you z feels like you zither down to the bottom. So that's, that's how some people view spiritual experiences. And so the question I want to talk about this evening is, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? What does she look like? What does he look like? Well, Paul helps us out. So let's have a look at chapter 12, and I'll read as much as I think you can stand. Now, chapter 12, verse 1, 1 Corinthians. Now, about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, that is, before you came to Jesus, 
But when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each is given, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message or word of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Just as a body, though one has many parts, many bits, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles or slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should compl complain, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. Indeed, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Jump down to verse 27. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you very, very much that you have preserved this, your word, in the form of the Bible down through the centuries. You caused it to be written in the first place by your Holy Spirit. You preserved it. You made it available to us. And we ask that this evening, the, same, the very same Holy Spirit who wrote it through your servant Paul, the very same Holy Spirit may speak to us through it. And as a result, we may be strengthened and encouraged and built up in our most holy faith. And the people said, Amen. So Paul talks here about what it means to be spiritual. 
Look in verse 1. Now, about the, the spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, the word you see, the fourth word in that sentence, gift, is not actually in the original text. It was a later addition by our English translators. So literally, you could read that opening phrase. Literally, it would read, now about the spirituals, now about spirituality. That's how Paul is introducing it. Now about spirituality, he says, I, I don't want you to be uninformed, or is elsewhere trend, I don't want you to be ignorant. Let's talk about this. Let me help you out. You see, 1 Corinthians 12 is not really about spiritual gifts. It's about spirituality. Um, you remember, or you may, you may, you may not, but um, the, the church in Corinth that Paul was writing to here in this letter was a wonderful church. You would have loved it. We would have loved it. But there were a number of things that were going a little bit sort of AWOL, going a bit crazy and needed to be brought back into line. So, for example, people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I don't know the last time you went to a church where people got drunk at the Lord's Supper. I've never actually experienced it. But it happened in the church in Corinth. And, and there, was, there was sexual shenanigans uh, going on, which shouldn't have been going on. There was bickering and factionalism. So one part of the church who followed a particular and were influenced by a particular assistant pastor were at war with another part of the church who were influenced by another pastor in the church. Do you see? And there was, there was factionalism and rivalry. There was chaos if you turned up on a Sunday. There was total, it was a zoo on a Sunday morning. All sorts of ridiculous things were happening. You see, so in each case, Paul says, look, I hear wonderful things about you, but you need to pay attention to this and to this and to this and to this. And some of them were getting slightly hyper-spiritual. And, and, and Paul says, no, let's talk about what it means to be spiritual people. You notice in verse 2, he says, you know that when you were pagans, that's before you came to Christ, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray. So negatively, Paul is saying, Negatively, what it means is that to be spiritual is that you are not going to be carried away. You're not going to be led astray. He said in your past you were, and you were led astray to mute idols. And of course, you understand the contrast, don't you? Because he's saying you, you, you worship these gods, they're entirely mute, they wouldn't, weren't able to speak. In contrast to the God we worship, who speaks all the time and he gives some illustrations of it. So he's drawing that. But you see, the, you see some people think, some people who, who don't know Jesus and don't follow him at this point in their lives, they, they sometimes say to me, I'm, I'm afraid that if I, if I start following Jesus, I'll be carried away and become what? A, a religious nut. Do you see? And no, no, that's exactly what you won't become. If you follow, decide to follow Jesus, you know. And, and if these are sort of questions that are going through your mind, um, uh, come to the, the morning or the evening service this time next week, next Sunday, the um, invitation service, and then possibly go on the Alpha course, because you can address these very, very questions and discover what Christianity is about, and indeed what it isn't about. 
So what Paul is saying here is, you see, a lot of us think that being spiritual means being carried away by some mountaintop experience. The, the more spiritual we are, we are the, the more of these you know, peak points we'll have. We'll clamber up with our crampons and our ice axes and we'll get to the peak, do you see? And uh, Paul says, no, he says, do you understand that it is not how high you jump that determines your spirituality, but rather it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. So, so spirituality is not a matter just of what happens at our services or our meetings. We can have occasions, there, there are many occasions when the Spirit of God comes and visits us powerfully, and you know, there's a certain drama to it. Maybe people experience mountaintops experiences, and that's wonderful. No, no, nobody's criticizing that. All I'm saying is that alone is not what makes a spiritual group of people. What spirituality is determined by what happens outside the meetings as quite as much as what happens inside. When you're driving home, when you're with a family over supper or after the morning service over lunch. Those sorts of interactions. It's how straight you walk. So, in order to unpack this a bit, Paul, <clears throat> in this chapter and a little bit further on, he gives four or five or six different characteristics of spiritual people. But don't worry, uh, I'm not going to keep you here all night and we'll serve breakfast in the morning. No, no, I'm just going to pick three of these. First of all, three characteristics of spiritual people, according to the Apostle Paul. First of all, spiritual people respect the lordship of Jesus. Spiritual people respect the lordship of Jesus. Verse 3, therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And you see here, what he's talking about is not what you say, but what you confess, and they're slightly different. Because in the Bible, confession isn't something that just trips off your tongue, comes out of your mouth. No, no, it's something that comes from your inner being, your heart, and finds expression articulated with your lips, yes, but that's not where it starts. So spiritual people respect the lordship of Jesus, which boils down to this, that spiritual people are people who let Jesus, American expression, call the shots. Just felt I ought to give you a warning there, because I was going a little cross-cultural. <laughs> I wouldn't want to catch you out. What it means is that Jesus is the one who's in the driving seat. He's got the steering wheel, he's got the controls of the car. And we run round to the other side and we sit in the passenger seat. And of the car of our life, he's directing and driving. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. Jesus is King. Jesus is the Boss. When he says Jesus is Lord, that's precisely what he means. 
And of course, that would have rubbed up the Romans the wrong way because they, you remember, they were constantly saying, Caesar's Lord, bow to Caesar. And the Christians were so countercultural because they say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. You bow to him. For the last uh, 29 or so years, nearly 29 years, we have lived in a place called Merton Park, which you won't have heard of. It is, in fact, on the cheap side of deepest, darkest Wimbledon in London. And uh, it is completely um, unremarkable uh, for every reason, except that the one famous thing about it is that the man called Lord Nelson, Admiral Nelson, um, do you know of, um, he was the fellow in the Napoleonic War, in the Royal Navy Admiral in the Napoleonic Wars who did very well, you know, I see no ships, you know, he's blind in one eye, that fella. <laughs> and anyhow, after I think the Battle of the Nile, which he did rather well, he was cunning, he's a very fine Admiral, he, um, the grateful nation gave him a huge estate with a house called, I think it was called Merton House or Merton Park. Uh, which was absolutely marvelous, except for the fact that into this brand new house he installed his mistress, not his wife, which was, uh, you know, awkward, <laughs> you know, embarrassing, uh, particularly because she used to be married to the British ambassador in Italy. So it was all rather awkward. Anyhow, that's our claim to fame. <laughs> and, and, and here's my point. John, have you got a point in any in this, all this fog? Have you got anything? Yes, I have. Because uh, in the 18th century, following one of his um, famous naval battles against the French, well, um, in which he brilliantly outmaneuvered the French, they had a line of ships. This is of no interest at all, but it's just the case. They had a line of ships up against the shore, so they thought that they could fire at the Royal Navy as they approached them not realizing that the Royal, um, uh, Wilt Nelson was very cunning, and he went round the back of them. And all the guns pointing that way, all the ports were shut and there was rubbish and stuff, so they couldn't fire the guns, so they got slaughtered, because Nelson just sneaked around. Anyhow, anyhow, that doesn't, that's today's piece, tonight's piece of useless information. <laughs> anyhow, having defeated the French fleet, the, 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 the desolate admiral, went on board Nelson's flagship, HMS Victory. And as he walked into uh, Nelson's uh, uh, cabin, he began to compliment, indeed flatter, the victor, at which Nelson held up his one good arm and interrupted him and said, Sir, I'm not asking for your admiration, but your surrender. Jesus asked for both. Jesus asked for our admiration, love, and affection, and our surrender. That's what the word Lord implies. So a spiritual person who is a person who, when Jesus begins to press on something, he presses you about your language and the way you talk about somebody behind their back. And he says, you need to stop talking about them like that. The spiritual person said, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. Or Jesus may be pressing you about your pattern of spending and the debt that is rising on your credit card. He said, you, you need to deal with that. 
It's the spiritual version who says, yes, Lord, okay, Lord. It's a spiritual person as, you, as we read the Bible together. And there are bits in the Bible none of us like. They're very unpopular. Some of them are very culture, cult, uh, going in the opposite direction from our culture. You know, when you think about some of the life issues and some of the issues of sexuality. Well, we just see things that we don't like and we find hard. It's a spiritual person who says, Lord, I, I don't really like this and I don't understand it, but I believe your, your will is good and right and therefore I bow my knee to you and I surrender to you. You see, if there are ever two words that never, never, ever fit in the same sentence, they are, no, Lord. It's just, it doesn't work. It's a contradiction. It's, a, it's an impossibility. It's like talking about um, boiled ice. It just doesn't compute. It doesn't connect. Peter tried it once. You remember the apostle Peter? Jesus said he was going to the cross to die. And, 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 be, and then he tried to combine those two words, no, Lord. And then it's a bit like on those game shows. You have that hooter thing. You go, eh, eh. Do you know, what's that, what's that awful quiz show just before the six o'clock news? on the BBC, useless or hopeless or hapless or something. What's it called? Pointless, I'm sorry, pointless. <laughs> there you go, same thing. You know, and they get it wrong and the, you, know, you know how it works. Well, Peter trying to say to Jesus, no, Lord, was in that same category. The game show Hooter went off loudly. So when pressed about something and Jesus says, John, turn that television program program off. Yes, Lord. John, don't talk like that about that person. Yes, Lord. L John, mend that relationship, that awkward situation. Yes, Lord. Spiritual people are those who respect the Lordship of Christ. Second, spiritual people are learning to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Second thing Paul says about a mark of a spiritual person, they're learning, always learning, to use, to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's really what chapter 7, verses 7 to 11 is all about. You notice he introduces the subject with saying that this is the activity of the Spirit, and it, these gifts are given for the common good. So they're given to you for the purpose of being a help and a blessing and encouragement to others, for the common good individually or a whole group. And if you want an easy way of fitting these nine, in verses 7 to 11, there's a list of nine different gifts. You can group them, if you want to, into groups of three, then using, continuing to use the body picture. You might talk about the mind of Jesus. That's in verses 8 and 10. Message of wisdom, word of wisdom we call it, word of knowledge, distinguishing of spirits, but that's the mind of Jesus. Then there are the hands of Jesus in verses 9 and 10, faith and, and gifts of healing and other miraculous powers. They're the power gifts, if you like. They're the divine energizers for the church. They're power tools. Now, um, 
I don't know about you, and I don't wish to be sexist about this, but um, women here, you love power tools, don't you, in the shed at the bottom of your garden? Well, and men too, but we'll include you, but it's mainly, isn't it, a woman's activity, a power tool. I'm teasing you. <laughs> I'm just teasing you here. Good. I'm, there is a distinct failure in the humor department here. Dear, dear, dear. Anyhow, never mind, I'll press on. I won't be put off. Um, a number of years ago, we, as I say, we lived in deepest, darkest outer Merton Park. And we decided to build, um, well, what my family rather rudely call a shed. I would say a magnificent edifice at the bottom of the garden <laughs> that might closely resemble a shed, but was more, um, you know what I mean, a summer house or a study or a library or a garden shed. And um, I could find lots of electricians who prepared to quote for installing the electricity into this thing. Or indeed telephone engineers who would run, you know, who would install the cabling for the telephone. I couldn't find any of them who prepared to dig a trench down the length of the garden. So I had to do that. And the only problem was there was a piece of, immediately outside the kitchen door, there was a piece of, a sort of slab of concrete. I mean, I couldn't call it a patio. That would be would in, in your mind conjure up something far too grand. It was just a slab of rather ugly concrete to get the night. Of course, you weren't allowed to lay the electricity. Health and safety would have a fit if you laid the electricity cable along the top of the concrete, wouldn't it? So um, I set to work with a you know, hammer and a chisel thing, thinking, oh, I can do this. And I'm left-handed, so my... After 10 minutes, the whole of my hand was bruised and sore and swollen because I was trying to hit this little, little narrow chisel. and It just wasn't working. It wasn't happening. So some of you, um, uh, most of you are far too young to remember. Some of you remember a, th a phenomenon called yellow pages. Yes? <laughs> some of you? One of two. The older ones amongst you. So I looked up in yellow power tools, and I found a B&Q or somewhere other hired them, and I found a thing called a... I wrote it down here, a Kango Power Jackhammer. Marvelous. <laughs> oh, I had fun. And it was a big thing, and, and of course it just went through, you know, it bounced around. It's a bit like bringing up children. You, you never quite know, are you, are you controlling the, them, it, or is it controlling you? Anyhow, we got through this thing, just went through the concrete like a knife through melted butter also went through the main drain like a knife through <laughs> melted butter, but we won't dwell on that. We'll hurry on. My point is power tools, tools to get a job done. And that's what he, Paul is talking about here, that Jesus provides for us, tools to get a job done. So the mind of Jesus, the hands of Jesus, and the mouth of Jesus, the last set of three, prophecy, speaking different kinds of tongue and interpretation, you could say are like the mouth of Jesus. <clears throat> but I don't believe that any of these nine gifts, any of them, as it were, are resident and perpetually live in the back pocket of your trousers for you just to whip out at any moment when, you know, you need to do whatever. I don't think it works like that. John Wimber, do you remember the name John Wimber? For those of you who don't know, he was the man that God used to, um, God used to um, start this thing called the Vineyard. And I try not to quote him too often because it sounds like hagiography. You know, he died 18 years ago, so you know, it's been a, it'd been a while. Anyhow, he did say some very good things. He said, this is a bit like a, 
Um, he said, these tools are a bit like a plumber would carry. Do you know, and you, you've got something wrong with your, the tap in your upstairs bathroom is leaking. So you get the plumber in, and, you know, he brings, he trundles upstairs. Uh, he has his um, bag, you know, full of his tools. I can say toys. I mean tools. And, um, you know, he gets out the wrench or the spanner or whatever and does the job that needed for that particular occasion. Well, it's rather the same with us, that God calls us out to go and do a particular job, and we've got a bag of tools, only the bag is completely empty. And as we come to the situation, we pray the normal prayer, that you know, you're going to go and pray for somebody to get healed, you pray the normal prayer, which is in the liturgy, which simply goes like this, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. That's very simple, write that down if you're taking notes. It's a very, very good prayer. And as it were, as we do that, the Lord puts into our hand the gift. It might be one of these nine. The equivalent of putting into our hand a spanner or a wrench or a screwdriver or whatever it is you're going to do. That's the way it is with the gift. Have you ever noticed you prayed for one person and God gives you the gift of healing and and you see some wonderful things happen? You 20 minutes later, you pray for another sick person. You do exactly the same thing. You stand in exactly the same way. You know, you, 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 you try and look as cool as you can. You cross your legs. You lean on, lean against, you lay your hands on a person. And absolutely nothing happens. Do you see? These gifts, God doesn't always distribute them in the way we think he ought to. That's the way it works. You ask the question, did the Apostle Paul have the gift of healing? Well, yes, because he healed many people. But he couldn't, even he couldn't heal at will, according to his determination, because there are a number of occasions in the Bible when it's very clear people he would have prayed for weren't healed. Take, for example, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Erastus, he says, stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in a place called Hardwood. I can't pronounce it. So I left Trophimus sick in Hardwood. Now, when they were together in Hardwood, do you think Paul didn't pray for him? Of course he did. Of course he did. But he wasn't healed. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says to Timothy, stop drinking only water, and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Again, it's unthinkable that Paul wouldn't have prayed for Timmy's tummy, isn't it? (laughs) Of course he would have done. If Paul had permanently had the gift of healing, you know, just on tap, he could just sort of turn it on, then of course all he needs to do is say, Tim, you got gut rot? Zap, be healed. And that would be it. No, instead, he says, take the equivalent, the first century equivalent of Alka-Seltzer, or Dialerite, or whatever it is, you know, whatever the, do you see? Medicine, the wine was drinking with medicine. So, no, these gifts are not permanent possessions. They are given in situations, they are situationally given, if you, if you like. Um, just uh, relatively recently, um, uh, it was over the, actually over the bank holiday last August, that Ellen and I were invited to, one e- to go to an evening gig at the uh, Reading Festival. You know, the Reading Leeds Festival at the last weekend of the summer. So we duly went. You look surprised. <laughs> Why would you do that? 
I wore a jacket like this, absolutely fine. So, I mean, I just looked at Le Reading Leeds Giga. I mean, it's just, it's effortless, isn't it? Anyhow, I got invited and I went, talk about a cat at a dog show. Anyhow. <laughs> uh, and whilst I was there, and whilst, uh, thank you so much, very, very kind. <laughs> I was looking for that. I was waiting for it. Uh, and while I was there, I was just chatting to a fella, and um, uh, just in sort of in conversation, he mentioned, he, I could see he was moving a little awkwardly, and he just mentioned he had a bad back. So eventually, I summoned up the courage and said to him, just, you know, would you, would, could I pray for you? You know, I explained that I was a Christian, or I think he knew that. And I said, um, could I pray for you? So he said, yes. So I said, now whereabouts did it hurt? And it was a sort of lumbar, lumbar region of his spine. So I, I was going to say I grabbed his wife. I didn't. I mean, I, I asked her to come and join me, is what I meant. And together we laid our hands on where it hurt, and we prayed our best. I prayed my best, joined up prayer. And then when I had finished, I stopped, if you know what I mean. I didn't go on and on filling the air with words. And, uh, and then he looked around. He spun around, looked at me, and he said, uh, where did all that heat come from? And um, you know, if you've done, if you've, if, if you've ever prayed for people who are sick, sometimes those, you know, there are some recognizable phenomena that happen, and this was one of them. So we explained a bit. Anyhow, we then went off to the gig, and we stood for, you know, two and a half hours. In the, it wasn't pouring rain. We were cheated. <laughs> we was robbed. And it wasn't knee-deep in mud. Again, I didn't think you went to Reading unless it was knee-deep in mud. Anyhow, um, and at the end of it, because he arrived, I noticed he had not only a walking stick with him, but one of those things, I think it's called a shooting stick, that has a seat that hinges in, on 90 degrees. And he didn't use it at all. And I said, as we were walking back across the field at the end of the evening, picking our way, you know, through the, you know, all the rubbish, uh, I said to him, how's your back? He said, well, you know, it's much better. I could never have stood for two and a half hours. Then I got a message a week, two weeks later from his son saying, Dad wants you to know that he's been digging in the garden this weekend, which, you know, was a total shock to the whole family. And, uh, in fact, he was due to have surgery in the autumn, I think in October or November. And his wife told me that he went to the surgeon and said, look, I feel, I, I've come to see you because I had an appointment, but I feel absolute fraud, I think were the words she used, because there's nothing wrong with me. So the surgery was cancelled. You see, so this is, God does it. Does that mean, John, John, every person with a bad back you pray for gets healed? No. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Gifts of healing. Third thing. We, spiritual people respect the Lordship of Christ, learn to use the gifts of the Spirit, and thirdly, have learned to resist comparing themselves with others. And uh, incidentally, they also reject the feeling of being inferior. Because you see, growing churches involve different, a diversity of functions. You notice all the way through, he was saying here, the body has different parts. We're not all the same. And different, the way that churches grow, whether it's a small church or a large church like this, you have a multitude of different activities, different things going on, some of which are extremely well run and the people who run them are extremely gifted by God to do it. 
And that's a wonderful thing. So you have the, the car parkers and the preachers on the Sunday, the people who do children's ministry and the people who make the coffee, wherever the coffee is made. You know, and, and you just go on and on and on and on. And you're all different, but you all belong together. Do you see? So in the church in Corinth, you know, not, not everybody was a church planter like Paul was or an eloquent teacher like Apollos was, who's mentioned in chapter 2, chapter 1 or 2, or personal evangelists like Priscilla and Aquila, or, or indeed elsewhere, open-air preachers like the apostle Peter. Different roles, different functions. And the, the tendency is that I've noticed over the years is that spiritual Christians tend to have a tendency to compare themselves with one another and to do so more often than not, in the vast majority of cases, compare themselves unfavorably with whoever they are doing this thing with. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 15 onwards. You know, because, you know, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I mean, this is almost comic. It's almost, I mean, with, you could have fun with a cartoon, couldn't you? You remember the Monty Python, the big foot coming down? <laughs> do you remember? You know, well, that's sort of what Paul is saying, you know, hand and foot. You know, okay, one is a hand is a little more visible than the foot. But other than that, you know, you can't do, you can't lock one off and, and expect to do as well as before you lopped it off. You see? The body is made up of, not made up of one part, but of many. But you notice what happens. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, what does the, what does, what does the foot say? I do not belong. Which is not the most, I mean, you, that's not exactly where you think. You know, the, the, foot should, the, the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, um, uh, I have to wear socks. I mean, it could say that, couldn't it? But it doesn't. It says, I don't belong. So, the, in this comparison thing, what tends to happen is people view themselves lower than they ought to. And the net result is they say, well, then, I don't really belong. I don't matter, and I'll just creep off into the shadows and detach myself from the church. Fatal flaw. Fatal flaw. Very, I mean, Paul has got it, hasn't he? I mean, it's, you see it, and you feel it sometimes. I feel it sometimes. Oh, I don't belong. You see somebody much more gifted than you, and you think, oh, I'm useless. I'm a waste of space. I'll just withdraw. The last thing. See, Paul is saying, whatever you do, don't amputate yourself from the body. Don't do it. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong. Do you see that what Paul is really saying is comparative, this sort of comparative thinking is just stupid. And he sort of sends it up a bit to make the point. It's daft. Bible says don't compare ourselves with one another. 2 Corinthians, Paul, the next letter, the second letter that Paul wrote, chapter 10, we dare not classify or compare ourselves 
when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, Paul again says, they are not wise. He's just saying it's unwise to compare yourself. That's chapter 10, verse 12. And it's fascinating, isn't it? The things that do, I've noticed in a church that it's, it tends to be a worship leader will compare himself with another worship leader who somewhat, is somewhat similar. Or a preacher will compare himself with another preacher. Do you see, as opposed to somebody who's doing the car parking. People who have sort of similar functions. So the eye is, the ear is like the eye in that they're both sense organs. But it's true that the eye is a little more prominent and visible and gets a little more attention. That's true. I mean, whoever, whoever put mascara on their earlobe. I mean, you... Darling, you've never done that, have you? No. no it, it, just, you know, it just doesn't work. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't compare yourself. You see somebody, what I've learned to do, you see somebody who's more gifted than yourself. We, uh, and and the, oh, what we're talking about is just our inner insecurities, aren't we? Because the whole theme of this is, of course, you belong, and God has placed different parts. God has assigned to different people different parts. We're not all the same. So when you see somebody who's flourishing, rather than get depressed by comparing as, well, they're flourishing and I'm not, try saying, oh, God, that's wonderful. I've personally found what really helps is to pray that God will bless them even more. Now, it sounds dreadfully pious, I know, but do try it. You really ought to try it. And it's something, and learning to take delight in the, can I use the word success, or the whatever, let's use the word success, learning to delight in the, the success of somebody else in the body of Christ does you a power of good. Because it sort of changes the framework. And God has arranged the parts. Now, in verse 27, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And the implication is each one of you have a part to play. So you cannot discount yourself. You cannot, therefore, bow out and say, oh, I don't belong. But I was going to use a naughty word, nonsense. It began with B and ended in ollocks, but I didn't say it. <laughs> it's rubbish. I didn't say it because I, I wouldn't say a thing like that in such a marvelous church like this. So will you take that to heart? That's what, there are other things, I haven't got time for them, so we'll, we'll stop now. But will you take those things to heart? Because we all want to be more spiritual. We all want to have the Spirit of God flowing, coursing, I was going to say, through our veins. Do you know what I mean? Available to God to use. We've sung some of those most beautiful songs about surrender and giving over to Jesus. Well, that's our heart. That's, you wouldn't be here. You've got better things to do on a Sunday evening other than coming, unless that was where you're, you planted yourself. And God bless you for it. And may you and I progress and become more deeply spiritual day in day as we shape our lives according to this book. Why don't we pray together? You can remain seated for once as we pray. 
Lord, we're so grateful to you. It's a wonderful thing to belong to you, to give ourselves, surrender ourselves to you, but to do so in the company of men and women. We really should have sang, sung, shouldn't we? Not I surrender all, but we surrender all. Because there's an I-ness to it, but there's a we-ness to it as well. And Lord, we love as a church to surrender ourselves to you and say, you've done wonderful things in the past and we're so, so, so grateful. But as we surrender ourselves to you and as your spirit continues to fall on us day upon day after day, will you, will you open up new vistas in the life of this church? Give us access to new pockets of people in the city who, are, whether or not they know it, are desperately seeking the Savior of the, the, Lord, the, the world who is the Lord and King, Master and Boss. We bow before you, Lord. We respect the Lordship of Jesus in our lives as individuals and as a church, as, as a body. And we ask, Lord, that you'll give us all the tools we need to do the job you've called us to do. And in all of us, you will extend and increase uh, the, the, our use of the gifts and our, our, our maturing in the use of the gifts as you distribute them among us. We may see people's lives, our own lives and other people's lives transformed by the power tools from heaven. We love you, Lord. 